We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, proudly Tasmanian and recorded at Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on the good things they're doing. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging and paying my respects to the Palawa people, the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathered today, Lutruwita. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and stand for a future that profoundly respects and acknowledges Aboriginal perspectives culture, language, and history. My name is Neve Chapman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Sarah Lydon, and today we're going to be talking about the science behind water and wastewater engineering with Phoebe Nash from Stornoway. So, Sarah, can you tell us a little bit more about Phoebe? Um, So, Phoebe studied chemical engineering and arts at Monash University and is currently working for Stornoway, which is a Tasmanian engineering firm. Uh, She's had a lot of experience in designing, constructing, optimising municipal water and water wastewater treatment plants around Tasmania. And a lot of her um, efforts in this space have actually been recognised by... In 2019, she was awarded the Engineers Australia Tasmanian Young Professional Engineer of the Year Award. That is absolutely awesome. So what a great guest to have to talk us through everything wastewater today. Um, So Phoebe, thank you so much for coming to chat with us today about water and wastewater engineering. Um, I guess to to start, could you tell us a little bit about the um, role that chemical engineers play in society? Sure. So chemical engineers are a pretty um, mixed bag of people in terms of what they do in society. So they typically um, look after any kind of industrial process, whether that be making explosives, uh, making beer, making Vegemite, or in my case, um, turning uh, sewage into water that can be treated to be discharged safely to the environment. So what attracted you to the field of chemical engineering? Uh, This is probably an answer that typically a lot of female engineers um, answer, I think. Uh, My dad was actually an engineer, so I, um, I kind of had an idea that engineers existed, um, which is probably part of the sort of the the issue with um, people, like women in particular, becoming engineers. They don't know that it's a viable um, career pathway. So my dad was a chemical engineer, so I kind of knew what it was. Um, and the other thing was my high school maths teacher um, also was an engineer. So they sort of suggested that it might be a good path to go down. Um, and then the other part of that is I knew that engineers get to um, to travel a lot. They get to wo- work on a really broad range of um applications um, and it's got you know sort of a, a social justice element to it because you're, you're helping to make the world a better place uh, depending on what you do of course um, and then I guess the the final aspect was I really like skiing and the only way I could think of um, being able to work near the snow was to become a wastewater engineer because that's the only type of engineering that's really applicable to chemical engineers so Yeah, that didn't quite happen, but I still like skiing. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe something for the future then. Yeah. yeah. Um, So for the episode today, we were going to talk about water um, and wastewater management. So how about we start with um, how water is treated before hitting our taps? So could you tell us a little bit about that process? Yeah, sure. So there's a whole lot of different ways that water can be treated depending on what the source water quality is like. So I'll focus on... uh, conventional water treatment as it's called because that's what is used at um, Hobart's largest water treatment plant. Um, So conventional water treatment plant is actually, uh, water treatment is actually 
um, a very ancient process. It, were u- it was used, you know, back in um, sort of ancient Greek times. And what it consists of is um, it's, it's very elementary. So it's basically um, a tank with a lot of gravel and sand in it um, and anthracite on the top, which is a type of coal. And the water trickles through um, these media. And as it trickles through, it removes the... Uh, the pathogens like viruses and bacteria that are dangerous to drink. Um, there's also, you know, far more complexity to it than that. But that's essentially um, what it was in ancient times. And the only difference now, really, apart from the disinfection at the other end, is that uh, we add chemicals upstream to condition the water so that it's um, we can um, neutralise some of the um, microscopic particles in the source water. Um, and when they're neutralised, they all clump together. So if you're looking at it uh, in the lab um, to get the dosage right, what you'll see is this really clear, nice-looking glass of water that probably looks all right to drink, and then you add the chemical to it, and when it neutralises the charges in the little particles, they all clump together, and all of a sudden you'll just see all these flecks of brown appear um, and these tiny little moving particles that suddenly become visible to the human eye, and then when they go through the water treatment um, the, the filter with the sand and the gravel, they're large enough that they can be filtered out. So then we've got um, the, the UV and the, uh, and the chlorine disinfection, which is probably a little bit more um, known to people. So that's, that's sort of it in a nutshell. That's really interesting. So do you spend time like in the lab looking at water samples or do you collect samples and then send them off to a lab? Because it sounds like there was a lot of steps involved there that I'm sure there's lots of quality control happening as well. And I just kind yeah. of was trying to visualise what a day looks like for you. Yeah, so I guess for me, I don't typically, um, we've actually got um, you know specialised water treatment plant operators in Tasmania who their sole job is to be in the lab getting the dosages right for the, um, the water treatment process. Um, and then where I might come in is probably more the, um, the, the stage where there's something wrong um, that probably needs like an infrastructure change. But we do have, um, there's actually like dedicated people whose job it is to just drive around all day and take samples from different taps and um, and see what the, the water quality is like, which is a pretty cool job really. Like you just get to drive around Tassie and, and take samples all day. Um, and then I guess at the, the other end of the scale when there is something, um, you know, the dreaded E. coli strike, um, then they actually used a specialised sampling procedure because um, typically the turnaround time to be able to detect E. coli in water is, um, you know, more than 24 hours because you've got to send it to the lab, you've got to grow um, the, the bacteria and then you've got, to, you've got to test to see whether it's actually like what's present. Um, but the other thing they use when they've got, um, uh, they, they do have an E. coli detection to not, uh, sort of to hone in on where that, um, that uh, breach um, in the treatment process has occurred, they actually use um, the the <laughs> they use something that involves the enzyme of a firefly because you know how fireflies um, their wings light up. So the enzyme actually converts DNA into light. So you can take a water sample, use that same enzyme, and it will convert um, DNA into light, and that is an indication that that's where you've got some living organism that has caused a um, you know, a, a water treatment breach. Oh, that's so cool. Who knew yeah. that that was an application of fireflies? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's so awesome. So stay with us in just a moment where we find out about some specific projects that Phoebe is working on. <laughs> you 
You are listening to That's What I Call Science. Today we're talking about the water and wastewater engineering. Uh, my name is Neve Chapman and I'm joined with Dr. Sarah Lydon along with our expert guest, engineer Phoebe Nash. So Sarah, Phoebe was telling us some really cool stuff about engineering. My mind's blown by that firefly fact. Um, what are we getting into for this segment? Um, so now we're going to talk about some of the projects that Phoebe has been working on. So I understand, Phoebe, that you've undertaken projects to reduce the energy and chemical usage in water treatment. So what have those projects kind of involved? Yeah, so um, talking about energy usage, I guess the, um, the, the there's a whole host of projects that have um, involved reducing energy usage and they're, they're sort of like really incremental um, energy usage gains so, um, or reductions, I suppose. Um, probably one of the... Um, the most recent has been um, Stornoway installed a whole lot of um, ultra filtration plants um, at small towns around Tasmania. So these towns previously didn't have potable water. They pumped water out of the creek and then they drank that or um, it came down from a, a existing pipeline from Lake Fenton um, without any treatment. So we put some um, uh, some u- ultra filtration plants in place in these towns and um, at one of them in particular there was enough... Um, head from Lake Fenton to be able to uh, run the entire plant by gravity. So that was a pretty big um, energy saving where we didn't um, we didn't need to use any pumped energy to make that work. Um, and I guess in terms of chemical um, usage, they're probably not the sort of the most exciting um, projects to um, to talk about because it's, it's literally things like when we talk about the going back to adding chemicals into the water upstream of... Um, uh, the the sand filters, um, the type of things that we're doing there is we are um, to to reduce chemical usage is um, adding in some some mixing facilities so that um, the when the the chemicals are um, coagulating all the particles they do it more effectively because there's um, mixing energy to help them bump into each other and and make friends. So they're, they're pretty small kind of gains, but when you add them up across the whole of sort of Tasmania and we also work in Queensland and those type of things really, um, yeah, make a difference. So what do those types of gains mean for like, are those benefits to the end user for making things more accessible and easier to access or is it like the system as a whole yep. and cost saving to, you know, the upkeep of water and maintenance and that kind of stuff? It's a bit of both because um, I guess there's definitely a cost saving because you don't have as many chemicals involved. Um, and then the other saving is that um, these chemicals uh, have um, some of the, the typical ones that are used um, are alum, which uh, is a coagulant, which again is something that's actually quite ancient. Apparently they, they use that in like, Egyptian times to help to coagulate water out. So, you know, we're not doing anything too new there. Um, but alum has... Um, as the name might suggest, it has aluminium in it. So the more aluminium you put into the um, into the the water, and the more that um, precipitates out the things that you don't need, the more the more sludge, as it's called, sludge waste you have that um, contains um, alum, which is uh, not really readily uh, recyclable. Some of it in Tassie goes to the tip. Um, yeah, so you're also get so you're also making gains in reducing waste products as well as cost savings in other spaces. So it's just really making the whole system more efficient. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. So now that we've talked about what happens with the water before it reaches our taps, can we talk about what happens when it leaves? 
our houses and goes into the sewers. Yes. Now, this is where the magic really starts because um, I guess, like myself, before I really delved into the area of wastewater, um, most other people wouldn't really know what happens when the water um, as sewerage leaves and goes to the sewage treatment plant. So when it enters the sewage treatment plant, the main things that we're trying to focus on um, are obviously removing the pathogens so that when it um, gets discharged to the receiving waterways, um, it's not going to cause any uh, environmental damage um, and removing the viruses. Um, And the other two big things, which um, have particularly been a focus over the last, um, I don't know, 20 or 30 years, have been the removal of uh, nutrients. So Uh, phosphorus and nitrogen now these are obviously things if you're a gardener that you'd know about because you need to give them to plants to feed the plants to get um, you know the growth you want to want to pick your tomatoes Um, but when they go into the sewage treatment plant um, the idea is to remove these two nutrients because otherwise when they get discharged into the waterways what they'll do is um, stimulate a process called eutrophication which is where the um the nutrients will stimulate the growth of um, aquatic plants and also algae and um, the plants will flourish, they'll grow, but then they'll die off and as they die off and decay, they'll um, use all the oxygen in the waterways and deplete the the waterways and make them anaerobic. So it's really not something that we want um, in the waterways. Um, And so the way that they get removed in the wastewater treatment plant is that we we manipulate... uh, microbes that are already present in the wastewater and present uh, I guess just generally in the environment and we create conditions for the microbes that are good at removing nutrients to do their work. So for nitrogen what we do is um, we use these two um, microbes called nitrobacter and nitrosomus and they convert the um, ammonia which contains the nitrogen into um, nitrite and nitrate um, and they need uh, they need air to do that, so we pump them in a whole lot of oxygen, and that's quite an energy-intensive process, obviously. So we pump in the oxygen that helps the nitrobacter and the nitrosomus to convert the nitrate and nitrite into sorry the ammonia into nitrate and nitrite, and then the nitrate and nitrite uses a different kind of um, microbe to then convert into um, nitrogen gas, and that microbe can't have any oxygen in it so all of a sudden we go from an oxygen state to a non-oxygen state Um, so we have to do a lot of like you know it's in different tanks so you need to make sure that you deplete all the oxygen at the right stage Um, and then uh, at that stage you also need to feed it um, carbon because the the um the denitrifying bacteria as it's called is pretty hungry for carbon so you need to bring in some raw sewage at that stage and there's a whole lot of recycles that go on to make this work and um, it becomes quite a delicate balancing act. And then um, for phosphorus, which uh, requires a completely different um, uh, microbe again to make it um, be able to be removed from the process, um, it needs an anaerobic environment. So you can't have any oxygen at all, but then it needs an aerobic environment after that so it can um, start eating up the phosphorus. And then if you slip back into an anaerobic environment after that, uh, unfortunately all your good work is undone because then it starts to release the phosphorus and you end up with what you didn't want in the first place. So there's a whole lot of... Yeah. So are all these like complicated steps and controlled conditions, it sounds like a massive science experiment essentially consistently always having to happen. Yeah. Um. So if we imagine in our lovely houses, we flush our bathroom and benefit from having good sewage systems and then it goes as wastewater through to a plant. So is there just like lots of tanks that are separating out different parts of the wastewater for treatment or is it all handled together just stepwise? Because you're saying there that 
nitrogen and phosphorus sounds like they're treated quite differently. Yeah. So if you kept them together in the wastewater, would that not cause complications? <laughs> it does. And I guess the amazing thing about wastewater is obviously you need it all over the world to um, be treated. So every um, single like sort of expert um, wastewater treatment uh company or research facility has developed a different process. So some of these processes all happen in the one tank called a sequence back reactor. Um, some of them happen in multiple tanks. Um, and it all depends on, this is where the engineering comes in, where you look at the footprint of the land that you've got and you look at the, um, you know, the size as well, because for a um, somewhere as small as Hobart versus somewhere as large as New York City, you're going to have a different um, size requirements and also different strength requirements one really like vague fact or you know obscure fact about um wastewater is that the the toilet paper is made from in australia like something with a higher cellulose um content than um in other parts of the world so the design parameters for um making a wastewater treatment plant in Australia have to account for the um, the toilet paper breaking down in a different manner and having a different oxygen demand. So all of these things feed into, um, yeah, whether you have like one reactor or multiple tanks. Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. So I wonder how many of our listeners are now thinking about how lucky we are to have such advanced engineering systems every time we flush the toilet. Stay with us for in just a moment. We'll be talking a little bit more about Phoebe's work. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we're talking about wastewater engineering. My name is Neve Chapman. I'm joined with Dr. Sarah Lydon and our expert guest, engineer Phoebe Nash. Now we were hoping to talk a little bit more about some sustainable directions for the industry into the future. Um, so Phoebe, can you tell us a little bit more about any measures that are being used in the industry to make everything more sustainable? In Tassie, you know, there's things that are going well and things that aren't going so well and things that are going well in terms of sustainability. Um, we use a lot of uh, lagoons, which to me, a lagoon conjures the idea of, you know, some like tropical island with this like, beautiful um, lagoon, or it did before I ended up in um, wastewater treatment. Um, so the the wastewater version of a lagoon is essentially just uh, like a, an enormous pond that, um, that treats wastewater. And it doesn't typically, um, in like the purest sense, use any... Um, mechanical means of uh, introducing air because um, as I mentioned before air is what helps to um, break down the the nutrients that we need to get rid of um, before discharging to the waterways so what it uses instead of air is it's you know a very large surface and the wind action across the surface of the water actually incorporates oxygen into the the um, the lagoon and um, creates the the treatment um, process so that is the case in a lot of um, towns around Tasmania. It's also the case in Melbourne, um, West, uh, not Western, Werribee um, uh, sewage treatment plant is uh, one of the world's largest lagoon-based um, facilities. It's actually a Ramsar wetland as well because the, the lagoon um, attracts so many, um, you know, interesting and diverse types of um, bird life. Um, so lagoons is one thing. The other thing is um, anaerobic digestion. So you can actually turn your poo into energy um, through uh, a process where the um, the biomass ends up turning into methane. And we've got that at um, the controversial Macquarie Point sewage treatment plant right now. There's a um, actually a cogeneration unit where the um, the some of the sewage is turned into methane gas, and then that um, gets used to power a generator that then um, you know uh, 
provide some of the electrical um, input into the, the plant and also some heat because the um, during anaerobic digestion, the uh, the bacteria like to be kept at a um, toasty temperature of between, I think it's 35 to 30 or 40 degrees. So that waste heat actually gets used to heat up the, the bacteria and keep them um, bubbling out methane. Um, and then, as I mentioned before, there's also the gravity-based um, systems, which yeah, happen in a lots of parts of Tasmania because we're quite a hilly area. So um, using gravity bit to be able to get water, um, uh, wastewater, um, where it needs to go is um, a good way of, of reducing um, pumping energy. Um, and then I guess the next part is obviously looking to the future. Um, and a few things that are on hori- the horizon for the future of um, wastewater in particular um, are things like... Uh, Animox, which is a type of bacteria that only recently, well, recently as in the last sort of 10 to 20 years, um, was sort of um, discovered as having an industrial application. And it's a particular kind of uh, bacteria that can convert um, nitrogen to nitrogen gas without needing as much um, as much oxygen input. And the reason why this is significant is because um, something like... Oh, sort of 2 to 3% of the world's energy gets used in wastewater treatment. Um, and so the Animox can reduce the oxygen usage by up to 95%. So when you – I can't do the maths on the fly, but when you look at 95% of um, of sort of – well, not quite 3% because the oxygen usage isn't all of it, but you know it's a significant percentage that can be um, reduced in terms of oxygen usage with this new bacteria – um, the problem with it is um, it only likes growing in really balmy conditions, so um, and it grows really, really slowly. So there's there are there is one facility now I know of in Australia where this is happening already, but you know there's definitely some challenges to making it work in um, Tasmania's more um, cold climate. Um, so what are some of the the reasons for trying to make these sustainable changes? Like what does that actually translate to on the bigger picture so we make these gains but how does that actually change the system or make it more sustainable at the societal level yeah I guess um I guess you sort of like looking through sustainability from the lens of climate change and and you know not um not uh using like it all comes back to energy usage really in the example of um this animox bacteria where you're using less energy um and therefore, you're you know not using as many fossil fuels to be able to to fuel the plants. Um, I guess the other sort of um, sustainable area, which is a really um, you know big, exciting sort of part of the future, um, is in terms of um, of fertilizer usage. So, uh, in in wastewater treatment, we're basically um, getting rid of potential fertilizer. So, you know, we're taking out the phosphorus and the, the nitrogen from the wastewater source and then we're just discharging the um, the liquid back to the ocean or the river. Whereas what we could be doing and what we do do in some parts of Tasmania is we actually take that um, nitrogen and phosphorus rich stream and we send it to, um, you know, land use for irrigation. So that's another way of um, of being more sustainable in the use of our um, nutrient um, cycle. Awesome. Do you have any other uh, questions, Sarah? Um, I was actually wondering if we could talk about one of the other things that you're involved in, Phoebe. So you um, assist with tutoring students for humanitarian engineering projects. So I was just wondering if you could sort of, we've talked about that on the show before, but if you could sort of tell us any parallels that you see between your engineering work and that kind of 
engineering context that first-year students might be working with? Yeah, so certainly the um, the biggest area and the area that I still struggle with a lot is um, for the engineers without borders challenge, it's the human-centred design process. There's a whole lot of stages that you um, follow through as part of it. Um, and one of the stages is the emphasise stage, and that's the stage where you you have to look at how the um, the end user, in my case, generally the client, what they expect from the product, how they would use the product, um, what their circumstances are, and and being able to sort of I guess place yourself in their shoes so that when you design the product, it's it's most effective. That's always a challenge, not just for the first year students, but like in my engineering world where you know we want to come up with the most high tech, exciting solution, but sometimes it's really a matter of just doing what the client wants. It's finding that balance and embracing the human side of engineering where you're actually listening to what the client's saying. So I wonder, to end on something, like what do you feel really excited about with either the future directions of waste management or with like your role? What really excites you or motivates you in it? Well, I think that the thing um, that really excites me is being in Tasmania right now and being part of the water and wastewater industry because we've historically... Um, the wastewater and water industry has been managed by um, the councils and so they haven't had a lot of like um, of I guess um, wastewater and water um, in-house or you know in-state expertise um, and some of the systems are therefore like either a little bit primitive or have been a little bit abandoned so there's so much um, area where we can put in some um, new and innovative um, technology and uh, and Tasmania has some unique challenges in terms of the fact that we've got a very small population, but we've got a geographically really widespread. So um, I don't work for Tasmania now, but I used to. So I know some of these sort of facts about um, the 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 sewerage and the water infrastructure that we have. If you talk about assets, a number of pump stations, a number of water treatment plants and wastewater treatment plants, it's larger um, in scale than you know somewhere like Melbourne. Like we've got a hundred. Um, over 100 wa- wastewater treatment plants and 70 water treatment plants where in Melbourne, you know, it's like, I don't know, 20 or 30 or I think 5 or 10. So it's a big, um, big challenge and there's, yeah, lots of scope for new engineers to um, sink their teeth into the challenges. That's awesome. It sounds really exciting. It's great to know that, you know, in Tasmania, it doesn't just because things have been one way for a while, there's still opportunity to come in and start innovating. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science. My name's Neve Chapman. I'd like to thank our engineering expert host, Dr. Sarah Lydon, for organising today's episode and our expert guest, Phoebe Nash, who is a water engineer. Um, it's just been a really fascinating show. So if you enjoyed it, uh, please get in touch with us, searching That's What I Call Science or That Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you get your podcast. Do leave us a review or subscribe because that'll help us spread the good word of science, technology, engineering, and maths more broadly. And until next week, folks, thank you and goodbye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. Gemmaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.